Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are there connections between UFOs and Bigfoot? What is the disclosure movement all about? What exactly are UFOs? Welcome to the 692nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and I'm Shane Serway as we broadcast live from the 2017 Saucer Symposium at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratton, New Hampshire. The event benefits the Exeter Kiwanis Club Fund for annual Exeter UFO Festival this fall, which in turn benefits local ch- children's charities. And Ben is here today, but he has to be the producer on location here, so say hello, Ben. Hello, Ben. That proves that you're here. Okay, on our panel today are UFO, cryptid, and all-around paranormal researchers, authors, broadcasters, and speakers here at the Saucer Symposium, uh, hosted by Seacoast Saucers of New England. Uh, They're great members here as well. And now I'll pass the mic uh, around so that the panelists can introduce themselves. But first, I also want to thank and introduce our live audience. Very good. Okay. So, let's start with uh, the people at the uh, far end here, and we'll start with Jeremy Dontremont. Just say who you are and uh, what you're doing here. Hi, yeah, I'm uh, Jeremy Dontremont. I'm uh, mostly a lighthouse guy. I've written a lot of books on lighthouse history, but I've been interested in the paranormal for a long time, and I'm speaking about uh, lighthouse ghost stories later today at the symposium. Uh, Mike Stevens with Seaco Saucers of New England. Lynn Nickerson with Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience, and Edge of Reality TV. Hi, I'm Willie Hassel, uh, co-host of uh, Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience, and Edge of Reality TV, and director of Spirit Chasers Paranormal. And I want to thank you, Paul, very much for inviting us today. Hi, I'm Andy Kitt. I manage the center that we're doing this out of, and... uh, I have a little bit to think about and say regarding EVP, ghost hunting, yada, yada, yada. And I am Chuck Credo. I am one of the co-founders of Seacoast Saucers, uh, and we run uh, meetup groups here out of the Care Ice Center every year. We also help uh, put on the Exeter UFO Festival with Kiwanis, and I'm also uh, the mind behind the Galileo interviews, which is coming out this spring. Valerie LaFasso. I am a co-founder of the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies, a co-founder of Seacoast Saucers of New England, and I'm also a medium and an author. Hi, my name is Alexander Petikov. I'm a filmmaker and a cryptozoology researcher. I'm going to be speaking a little bit later about some of my techniques in filmmaking and approaching this subject and showing two short documentaries about Bigfoot phenomenon in the New England area. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Uh, because we only have one hour, we won't be able to take phone calls today, but many listeners have sent in questions, and we will take audience questions beginning now. If anyone from the audience, just step up to the mic, and we'll get started with a question that came in from Natalie in Waco, Texas. Uh, do any of the Bigfoot researchers have answers for why Bigfoot is seen around UFOs? Um, Say your name first. Yes, this is Alexander Petikov once again. Um, And, you know, I I don't really consider myself so much a researcher. I kind of research through the filmmaking. I have not really had any experiences with the UFO Bigfoot connection, but I've heard uh, plenty of people that have told me about this kind of connection or possibly some sort of interdimensional aspects. Uh, I think it's just another mystery onto an already mysterious subject. So I don't like to say that I have any answers, but... I'm sure there are 
there are answers out there, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of them at some point. And if anyone else has anything they want to say on this. Um. Okay, I, we were hoping Ronnie LeBlanc, uh, who is the author of the Monsterland books, we did a show with him uh, a few weeks ago, and we were walking in the Monsterland, as it's called, area of Lemonster State Forest. So maybe I can speak uh, to the question from what I've learned from him. And uh, the question, of course, has to do why Bigfoot is seen sometimes around UFOs. Arani made the point that Bigfoot is very often seen around uh, orbs, which are, of course, these balls of light, and they're very often orange. So I don't know why that is necessarily, but we suspect, being Ben and myself, that orbs are at least sometimes uh, plasma-based life forms feeding around the boundaries of parallel worlds or the brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, or membranes, as physicists would call them. So that's one possibility. If Bigfoot is a, as we say, multiversal creature, comes and goes, the natives say he was a shapeshifter, uh, comes and goes, and it's just a different way of saying the same thing, then that may be an explanation. They may be maybe just incidental. Uh, however, there are occasional reports, uh, particularly I'm thinking of a French case uh, that's going to be in our, our forthcoming book, um, which is coming out next month, uh, Behind the Paranormal, uh, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. A little bit of self-promotion there. Uh, and there was a, a landing in France in a field. A couple was sitting outside in a car, and craft came down in a field. Two rather alien-looking critters got out, greys, as you might say, and then two human-looking figures got out, and then what appeared to be nothing less than a Bigfoot got out of the craft. And, kind of, and this, this sounds like the beginning of a very funny joke, but nevertheless, uh, this, is, this is what was reported and has been on several occasions. So I guess that's as best we can do there, Natalie. Thank you for writing in. Uh, the next question is from Derek in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Uh, I know I have written in about this before, but when Paul and Shane talk about what was happening to them in the, in the Pennsylvania Triangle, I cannot get over how Paul thought his Bigfoot experience was a privilege. How many people on the panel think that their experiences, uh, apparently all kinds of paranormal experiences, are a privilege and which ones are frightening? Okay, uh, Valerie. Um. I may have had a Bigfoot encounter um, personally. Not quite sure if it was a Bigfoot. Um, not going to go into details right this minute. But um, what I experienced was definitely something that I'd never experienced before. It was it was awe-inspiring, and it was it was a privilege to encounter something that has this this ability that I didn't have, that I don't have, um, to be able to be where we were and exuding this energy that we couldn't mistake as anything other than something otherworldly um you know these these creatures or beings or whatever they they are you know they they don't seem to be harmful they seem to be curious just like us and and um so i would say that yeah it's it's a privilege to encounter something that is curious and can do these amazing things that we are curious about and hopefully we can eventually learn from each other. Thank you Valerie. Pass the mic over to Jeremy Detremont who would like to address that question. Yeah, thank you. Um I've taken part in a lot of uh paranormal investigations at lighthouses and uh I for the most part, I feel it's very much a privilege. I've had some experiences, things that are, uh, you know, not easy to explain in any kind of everyday, uh, so-called normal kind of way. So, you know, I feel that I have experienced the paranormal, and I, it's very much a privilege. 
I've never been frightened in those situations. But I, I just I do want to mention one uh, experience I had that has nothing to do with lighthouses, and may not even be paranormal. But it's one of the most. It's a time when I was the most frightened I've ever been, and I think it may have been paranormal. And I I let, I. I kind of welcome the chance to say this because maybe somebody has an idea about what this was. This was back about 25 years ago. My wife and I were camping in southern Vermont, in tent camping, and 3 a.m., I know it was exactly 3 a.m. because I looked at my watch when we woke up, we heard the strangest sound from the woods around us, and it sounded like a loud bark, but sort of almost like a combination of a, a frog and a seal. I don't know how else to describe it. I, um, it was was really bizarre and it was perfectly spaced out each time like ow ow and it was getting closer and closer to the tent and it sounded like it was a couple of feet off the ground almost like it was gliding along and there was no sound of footstep footsteps on the ground or anything like that and it was extremely frightening when neither of us was breathing for a few minutes and we just you know lay there motionless and the thing the sound went right by, like, seemed like it came, almost brushed against the tent and disappeared in the other direction. And in all these years, I've, I've looked, I've, you know, listened to animal sounds of all kinds that might be in the woods in that area, and I've asked a lot of people, and nobody can tell me what that was. If anybody has an idea about that or has experienced anything similar, please tell me. <laughs> Okay, and we certainly consider that uh, an invitation to uh, write into the show, which we can certainly pass questions that listeners send uh, on to Jeremy. So, um, very, very good. Thank you. Also, now we have Andrew Kitt, uh, head of the uh, Kitt Research Initiative, uh, who's going to respond to Derek's question. Um, The most important part is actually probably the context of your encounter. Uh, if it's a surprise encounter and you feel your your safety is threatened, it's very easy for you to feel f- feelings of fear. Uh, but if you feel comfortable and if you feel privileged uh, to to encounter this thing in, in these rare circumstances, well, how you feel is is something that has to do with you, not necessarily the encounter itself. Okay, thank you very much. I was uh, caught off guard there. Uh, we're going to have a question, I guess, from Colby. Would you like to ask a question in the audience? Okay, right, Ben's going to lower the mic because Colby's a bit diminutive here. But uh, um, will this be in uh, in line with Derek's question about how uh, you or you just wanted to ask a question of your own? I just want to ask a question. Very good. Step up and to the I mic, please, Colby, and uh, just speak right into the mic. Thank you. Go right ahead. All right. There we go. Hi, my name is Kobe, and I think I found Bigfoot in it, and it's my uncle, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I and okay, here, that was a joke, and here's a serious question: How do you communicate with Bigfoot? Okay, how do you communicate with Bigfoot? Kobe asks. Thank you for the question, Kobe. Uh, okay, we're going to have uh, Alexander Petikoff answer that one. Begin. So there's a lot of theories that uh, stick clacking or rock clacking is sort of a form of communication. People have reported wood knocking, uh, hearing it in the woods, and uh, I've had a couple experiences where I've been with people that have been wood knocking, and we've actually heard something responding to us. So some people theorize that that is perhaps one form of communication. Another one is the whooping or the kind of uh, vocalizations that are heard, like the whoop, may have seen on Finding Bigfoot. 
uh, people will do the calls and try and get a response. So that's probably your best bet in terms of trying to get communication uh, because other apes actually do use that form of communication like the chimpanzees are known to use sticks and rocks to communicate if they're in further distances from each other. So that would probably be a good way to you know, go out in the woods and maybe uh, make sure there's no other people in the area and, and do some uh, you know, kind of wood knocking. So that might be, might be a good way to communicate with Bigfoot. Okay, I'm happy to say that Roddy Blank has joined us. We were just talking about you, and uh, would like to respond to Colby's question. Sure. Yeah, uh, Roddy LeBlanc, author of Monsterland, and the question was about communicating with Bigfoot. Was that right? Yeah, what Alexander was saying too with the wood knocks seems to be the the main uh, communication form, uh, but there's also other. Uh, stick structures and things that they they leave these uh, almost like these glyphs of uh, sticks kind of put in these different formations almost like an alphabet uh, so some of those type of codes and way they bend trees of how to stay away from certain areas okay. uh, Shane will take the next question I also want to add, add to that too um, when Paul and I were in Pennsylvania um, I was in a camper. Paul was on on the other side of the property, and um, I actually heard two different what I believe were Bigfoot communicating with each other, and there seemed to be some kind of a language, um, almost like words, like I should be able to hear, uh, understand, but I I couldn't. But it was kind of like like that. But there was one on one side of the camper, one on the other. One had a higher pitch voice, one had a deeper voice, and it went on for for a while. Um, but all right, so that was. Okay. Um, yeah, very good. Actually, um, I believe that uh, Lynn Nickerson had a response to the question, or we wanted to make a point. Here's Lynn. Thank you, Shane. Um, this is Lynn Nickerson, of course, from Spirit Radio. I did want to mention that Bigfoot is known for some vocalizations. Uh, Mary Joyce, who has a website called Skyship Over Cashers, she had posted a link to someone from Russia who had posted a vocalization. And it lasted about five minutes, but it actually sounded like a Bigfoot sitting there trying to either communicate with the person that had left him food or perhaps another Bigfoot. Um, the vocalizations were almost word-like with a combination of grunts and sighs and something repetitious and repetitious sounds but there was definitely an attempt to communicate with someone and there's sort of the assumption that it was the person that was leaving him food it was very interesting it was about five minutes long and it is on the internet you might check skyshipovercashers.com okay she's Thank been you. on our show yeah, and yeah she's uh, great. mike has a point to make Mike Stevens from Seacoast Saucers of New England. Um, yeah, Mike Stevens, as he said. Um, to answer Colby's question, we've actually took in recordings of those um, supposed vocalizations out to remote wilderness areas and broadcast them out. Um, we didn't actually see anything or hear anything, but um, the energy around it changed that four seasoned investigators got frightened and locked themselves, you know, in a cabin for the rest of the night. Um, so... That's professionalism for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing like throwing yourself in head first. Yeah, right. There's one point, when, and Colby got me thinking about something that Ben and I mentioned in our talk yesterday, uh, a 1936 incident in the so-called uh, Jefferson County Square of Weirdness in Wisconsin. 
so so commissioned by uh, Linda Godfrey, the uh, Bigfoot and Canine Cryptid expert. And it was 1936... There was a night watchman or security guard who was in the back of a facility, and the area is full of a lot of Native American burial mounds. And he saw a very tall cryptid. Well, cryptid, if anybody doesn't know, is a is an unrecognized creature, creature unrecognized by science, such as Bigfoot and this sort of thing. But there are also dog-like canine cryptids. This fellow saw one that was digging in an old Native American burial mound. And when the thing turned and saw the man, it uttered in a very guttural, low voice something that, that he said sounded like Gadara. And the only context I know for the word Gadara is in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's the city in the Middle East where Jesus was casting out a bunch of demons and they ran into the, thank you, and they ran into the um, sea and drowned themselves. And as I mentioned yesterday, there was no comment about what the pig farmer thought about all this. But um, that's the, that was a very, very strange sort of context for that particular uh, incident. So if no one else from the audience has a question at the moment, we do have an audience question. Step right up, sir. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Patrick uh, from Vermont. And my question is mostly towards uh, uh, Paul. But I was wondering if you had any recommendations for further reading on uh, the multiverse. Um, philosophies and flap areas and things of that nature. Okay, Okay, well, this is going to sound like I put you up to this, Uh, but uh, we have a new book that came out in November called Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and I think it's a good introduction. There it is, someone's holding it. Thank you very much. The check is in the mail. But... it's available at uh, all most bookstores have it, Barnes and Noble, etc. Or we have it for sale here at the Saucer Symposium. If you happen to be in Southern New Hampshire today, you certainly are. So that would be a good introduction to some of the concepts, and we go through the history of the paranormal from that point of view as well, etc., etc. Uh, we are contemplating a book on flap areas based on our program yesterday. If you were here at the Saucer Symposium and. Uh, we, we, uh, ben and I came up with the idea, gee, we have all these different programs. We could make books out of these things, right? So uh, stay tuned on that one. But we get into the concept in, in all of our books. Okay. Uh, other than that, there is um, there are some uh, a number of books um, that are good. Uh, I don't want to be promoting them on the air like this, but you can if you drop me an, an email, Paul at behindtheparanormal.com, I'll be happy to send them uh, send some recommendations for you. So, uh, good question, though. Okay. Any other audience questions before we move? Okay, yes. Step right up, sir. Hello. My name is Ken. I come over from Maine. Uh, My question is kind of like, do they have a sense of whether or not you're friendly? In other words, if you were out there as a hunter and had a rifle, would they be more apt to be unfriendly towards you? versus if you're just out there as a hiker doing nothing. Okay, good question. We'll pass that on to Alexander Petikoff to start. Thank you. So many of the researchers I've spoken to and interviewed have said that they can kind of sense intention. So if someone is going in there, as you said, with a rifle or with some kind of malintent, they might provoke bad behavior. They might get rocks thrown at them or scared out of the area. As so happens, a lot of encounters in New Hampshire, especially in the northern part of the state, have been hunters being scared out of the woods. You know, these people are out there killing wildlife, so maybe somebody that 
lives in the woods like a Sasquatch wouldn't be so keen to that sort of negative behavior. But going in with kind of a clear mind, uh, well-intentioned, you know, making yourself seem like you're not a threat may result in some better interactions. That's that's what I've heard at least in multiple areas across the country uh, in terms of success with interactions and gifting and using food as a sort of happy medium to connect to possibly similarly related species, us and them. So uh, I think there is definitely a sort of intention uh, that can be sensed by these, these beings. They have to be quite intelligent to stay alive and stay hidden. So there is definitely something there with that. All right. Uh, thank you, Alexander. I'm thinking of a few weeks ago, a few months ago, Ben, we had uh, Jim Lansdale from Killing Bigfoot on the show, and a lot of people were not pleased, okay? He approaches uh, the subject as if Bigfoot is just a uh, huge mammal and can be shot and collected for science. And, then, you know, this is always possible, but uh, a lot of people have a different view. Pass this on to Ronnie LeBlanc for his response. Yeah, just to echo uh, Alexander's um, comment, too, about intention and that when you do go out into the, the woods, they just similar to like elephants, certain animals, that they can pick up uh, kind of your vibe, if you want to talk about those the vibrations, so that they know if someone's out there to harm them or someone's there to you know communicate with them. What's interesting, the, the, the different camps, you have the ones that are the monster hunters that are going out. Rarely do they get any type of... Um, sightings or things like that, but the ones that are actually gifting and leaving food or um, kind of approaching it in a different way uh, that these are not necessarily an animal, but a people seem to have a better um, communication and interaction with these things that tell you that they are uh, out there not to harm you. People get rocks thrown at them. They never get hit, but the rocks land kind of near them almost to scare them away. We've had uh, hunters in Monsterland that have been up in, up in uh, tree stands that had basically being approached from all around them and being whistled at just to scare them, for them to take off. They've also had uh, deer carcasses up in the trees. So they do different things. They don't want hunters in their, their hunting grounds. Next question. All right, next question. Um, from Kyle from Florence, South Carolina. Do your guests agree that most people get their knowledge of the paranormal from movies and reality TV? Also, I like the scene in Poltergeist where objects are apporting and falling from the ceiling. Has any of the guests seen this happen? And I guess I'll go first on that one. Um, I, I do think the majority of people get their idea of what the paranormal is about from movies and TV, which is um, not not good, <laughs> um, especially the reality TV shows. Um, it's, a, it's a lot different than what you're watching on TV. Um, and, but in a lot of these groups that forum after watching these shows, they think, because they, they saw it done on TV, that they can also do it. But, um, you know, if you're just tromping around cemeteries, I guess that's, that's um, fine. But um, I... I I don't recommend watching these shows and then telling people that you can go in their house and help them with a parasitic entity if that's what they're dealing with. So, um, But listening to Be Behind the Paranormal is a good way to learn more about it. So, uh, But um, let's see if anyone has anything Actually, else to uh, say. Chuck Credo uh, from Seacoast Saucers is going to respond. Yeah, Chuck Credo from Seacoast Saucers. So part of what we do is uh, we're, we're trying to create a, a social campaign to help um, help teach people a little bit more around what 
is it that is being reported as opposed to the pop culture stance? So we get, we talk to people, we go to all sorts of events where we have booths and we talk about UFOs and aliens and all these different things. And one of the first things that people say to me actually is, uh, boy, I love ancient aliens. What a great show. So it can be a double-edged sword in certain ways because, um, first it gets people to understand the information, but at the same time it can create uh, sort of a, a faulty belief system for some people. So it's really important that we all keep an open mind um, and that we don't just buy into everything that's in Hollywood, especially Hollywood. In fact, I know many people have been on reality TV shows and they say it's actually more fake than it is reality. So I think it's important to keep all of that in mind and keep an open mind as well. Okay, very good. And we'll pass the mic over to Andrew Kitt from the uh, KRI Center for Consciousness Studies where we're having this uh, great broadcast today. Hi, I'm Andy. Um, first, regarding people getting information, you get, gotta sort of expect them to choose the the quick fix for their their first introduction. So they'd go straight to TV, YouTube, or whatever, and get their information from there. Uh, but for the more in-depth knowledge, the people who want more will start reading. And this is kind of a new phenomenon. The internet hasn't been around that long. All the extra TV shows. So 30 years ago, people only got it from books. Um, regarding airports, we've had several instances where we've found unusual objects in unusual places, uh, but our teams have never actually seen them appear, uh, although we've read many reports and we have really good reason to suspect uh, we've witnessed the outcome of several of these instances. And we'll pass the mic in just a second here to Willie Hassel, but just uh, Tim Schwartz, who is not with us today, uh, who is a show host and author, a very, very interesting researcher in this field, has actually seen stones appear during a poltergeist case near the ceiling and fall to the floor. Uh, he took one and he threw it into the field in back of the house after having marked an X on it. Within a minute, it had appeared with a bunch of other stones and landed on the floor of the living room. So, interesting stuff. Uh, I've seen a lot of poltergeist, knockdown, dragout stuff. I've seen stuff come and go, but not appearing in, the, in that manner. So, anyway. So, Willie. Willie has... what do you have to say? Okay, I'm Willie from Spirit Chasers Paranormal. And the, to answer the direct question about uh, the TV shows, uh, it's it's entertainment. You know, it's, it's nothing like the real investigations. And the one big problem I have with it is, uh, like I believe Paul mentioned, or somebody mentioned, you know, people watch these TV shows and they say, oh, I'm a paranormal investigator. I'm going to go investigate people's houses. But along with that comes a lot of responsibility. If people are saying, help, I, I think I have a demon. You know, not that I necessarily believe in demons. But if a person is, thinks they have a demon in the house and you go in and not knowing what you're doing, you give them the wrong information, you can hurt more than you can help. And so, you know, I, I just think that you really need to know, go further into it and know what you're talking about before you go walking into somebody's house and giving them advice on uh, demonic possessions or, or whatever the case may be. Okay, and uh, another response from Lynn Nickerson. Yeah, to add to that, um, 
I believe that reality TV has has a place. I mean, you are shown some elements of truth, but they don't happen in a natural, sequential way. It, it is fabricated. It's artificial to express something, but it's not happening in real time. That's one point I wanted to make. The second one is Willie and I did experience an report during one of our investigations, and it was a stone that fell directly from the ceiling. We did not see it, but we heard it and turned our backs and saw it on the floor. So these things do happen, and apparently it had been housed in another room that we knew nothing about, its location, so it would have had to have been thrown up to the second floor and then dropped down from the second floor, and there was just no possible way, no logical way for it to happen. So these things do happen. Okay, very good. We have an audience question. Hi, I'm Paula from Maine, um, and I'd like to address this to everybody in the panel, starting with Paul. Um, so, <laughs> just speak into the microphone, my dear. I am um, okay. Um, what was your most interesting case? Do you feel, and why? Uh, okay, thank you for the question. Uh, gee, after 47 years, it's uh, a little tough to kind of sort through them. Probably. The <laughs> There are two that really stand, well, three that really stand out. One was the, the very first case I ever did, which was Pomfret, Connecticut, the so-called Lost Village or Village of Voices, abandoned uh, village. Uh, that was 1970 to 1972. And that was because I went in there with one set of beliefs, and every single one of them fell like bowling pins in front of what was experienced in this place, not only by me, but by several other uh, seminary students and also um, uh, a photo expert, things of this kind. So I'd say there was that one. You know, you'd walk in and you'd hear uh, farm implements banging together. You'd hear horses and cows. You'd hear dogs barking, people talking as if it was a normal day for somebody else, not, not a bunch of dead people. And I said, this is very physical. Uh, we heard an ox cart driver go by that we couldn't see, but we heard the wooden wheels and the hoofbeats and said, so, you know, are we dealing with dead people here or does this have more to do with, with time, perhaps? So that was really the most shocking thing. And I think the most shocking thing of all was on, uh, no, uh, should say November 25th, Monday, November 25th, 1974, in the Bridgeport, Connecticut house where, which is the subject of William J. Hall's book, The World's Most Haunted House, Poltergeist Outbreak and Activity. And uh, that was that was just a matter of, of total shock because I had a physical confrontation with something that was supposed to be a spirit. Uh, that really sh- And I could even feel its, its skeletal structure as I struggled with it to protect a little girl. So I think those two moments were probably the seminal moments for me, and they were very, very long ago. Uh, another one, not, not to take this up, I'm supposed to be just the host here, but 1979, right up the road here in York Harbor, Maine, I encountered a uh, young girl uh, who was uh, being considered haunting a house, but yet she was a student at the University of Connecticut, 120 miles away. Uh, she met the people, uh, of the, the owners of the house she was supposedly haunting and on their doorstep because she recognized the house. Really, really strange stuff. Uh, scared the daylights out of everybody. They would see her in transparent form doing things she was dreaming about doing, which is how she knew the house, but not at the same time she was dreaming it. So this is all, I've written this all up in books and stuff, so you can deal with that. But th- those are those are the, the questions. So to uh, anyone else on the panel, would you like to address the same question? What are the seminal moments, perhaps, of your paranormal care? Okay. Lynn, who already has the mic. Oh, no, I was just saying that I have the mic for you. I didn't have anything to add to that. Um, <laughs> okay. Shane? Yeah. 
Hey, well, Shane, yes. Yeah, this is Shane Sarway. Um, I've done plenty of cases um, throughout, you know, over 30 years, and I've seen a lot of strange things, a lot of, you know, very um, seen a kid get thrown through a room. I've seen a, a full-grown man get slammed against the wall by a king-size mattress. I've, I've seen things, you know, um, a lot of stuff. And But I think the one that stands out most for me is the case I met Paulino on back in 1998 uh, because it involved a man who who had cancer and basically we we got him on a road to healing his environment but it also healed his cancer his cancer disappeared and i and i think uh, that's the case that stands out most for me and also i i gained a lifelong friend in paulino anyone else okay valerie um, so Seco Saucers does an event um, called Contact Circles where we do meditations with the intent of reaching out to benevolent non-Earth beings. Um, we did it as a group for several months on a weekly basis um, and then decided to take it outside into the real world and send our messages to the sky and see what happens. Um, so we hiked a mountain and... Um, the f there was four of us there. We watched the skies. We watched for um, probably a couple hours with not a whole lot happening, a couple weird flashes, you know, a few satellites going by. And then um, we were getting really close to giving up. It was getting late. We were chilly. Um, and so we were about to say, okay, let's go in, when um, a, something, a light in the sky caught my attention and... Um, I brought it to everybody's attention. I said, you know, do stars normally do that? Because it was, it was a little bit bigger than an, a star that I normally see, and it was flashing red, white, and green steadily over and over again. So I said, do, do stars do that? Is that a planet? What is that? And as soon as everybody focused on it, it started to dance. And, I mean, there was no mistaking that. This thing went from staying still to moving around, moving, zigzagging, all in the same area, but it was moving around. We watched it for 45 minutes dancing. Um, it would stop when an airplane would come by, um, and it would stay white. And as soon as the airplane was gone, it would start dancing again. Um, we collectively, with our minds, asked for it to move in just a plain circle, and it, it did a loop for us. Um, and then all of a sudden it was gone. It just, like that, it faded. Um, we went back a year later, a year and a couple months later with a couple different people and the same thing was there and it did the same thing for us. Okay, thanks Valerie from Seacoast Saucers. If we could uh, just pass it on to Andrew uh, from KRI Institute for Consciousness Studies, which is uh, where our wonderful venue is today. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, thanks. Uh, this is Andy. Um, there are a lot of memorable investigations, and essentially for me, it's every time something new occurs, you know, it stands out in your memory. So if you think about that, the most impressive investigation would be the first one, and for us it was because you're experiencing the most new phenomena, and you're realizing that this stuff is real, that you can actually capture it. And uh, for us, that first real investigation was uh, a bar in Dover, and it will always stand out in my memory just because so many interesting things converged to give us some real data, some real recordings, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, let's pass the mic to Chuck Credo from Seacoast Saucers, who has a response. So, essentially, uh, what I do is I, I interview and talk with people that have experiences, and while this might have not been my experience or investigation, um, when I was uh, in a job about five or six years ago, I was talking with somebody just about various things, and I found out they worked with dolphins. And I said, you know, 
I've always been interested in dolphins for some reason. I said, you ever had anything strange happen with a dolphin? Now, this is a very straight-laced woman in a very professional job. She goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, anything that might be considered, I don't know, paranormal or anything. So I left, uh, I left a very open-ended question, and she filled in the blanks, and she goes, I've never really told anybody this, but I'm going to tell you about it. And she went on to tell me that she actually used to work in Florida, and she was a supervisor at a dolphin research facility somewhere in Florida. She had been working with them for about 20 years. And they are a matriarchal society, so the females run the pods, essentially, with dolphins. And she said the oldest dolphin there that was kind of the boss of all the dolphins, and I, I'm going to make up a fictitious name because I don't remember the name of this dolphin, but we'll say uh, uh, her name is Brenda, right? She was with Brenda, this dolphin, one day, and she bent over and she was just petting her and looking at her in the eyes, and all of a sudden, in her mind, she hears, Brenda will pass away tomorrow at 1.41 p.m. And she goes, what just happened? And she's like, she steps away, and she looks at the dolphin, and walks away, walks around a little, tries to figure out what just happened. She, she's like, all right, I need to get grounded. This is weird. Some, you know, whatever. Never had anything like this happen before. The next day, she's in another city doing errands, running something for work. And she got a call from her coworkers around 12 o'clock. He said, you need to rush down here. She, Brenda's not doing well. We knew she wasn't doing well. But you need to rush over here. She got there just before 141. She held the dolphin in her arms, looked at the dolphin in the eyes, and looked at the clock when the dolphin passed away. It was 141. And I thought that was a fascinating story. And then recently, um, with the Galileo interviews, I actually uh, interviewed a lady who takes trips to Bimini, uh, Florida, believe it or not, and she actually helps people swim with dolphins, very therapeutic way, but in a spiritual sense. So, of course, I've got to ask the question, because the only story I've ever heard around telepathy and dolphins was this lady I worked with, who's not into anything paranormal whatsoever. And I said, you know, tell me a little bit about dolphins and what they mean. Well, I had a telepathic experience with once. Of course, I had to ask her, tell me about this. And what she said was, she was swimming with the dolphins for the first time, and they were swimming, uh, you know, they had a boat, and they were in Bimini, which a lot of people theorize is like the remains of Atlantis. She'll hear people talk about that a lot. And she said uh, a pot of dolphins came around, and she was swimming with them. And all of a sudden, she heard in her mind, uh, she got really worried because she looked down, and she saw a shark not too far down from her. And the dolphin surrounded her, she said, and she heard in her mind, don't worry about him, we have you covered, you're okay. So I just, to me, I find it fascinating because I had never even heard of such a thing. And then I have two totally different people within six years of each other telling me these stories. So I just found them absolutely fascinating. Very good. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, Jeremy Detrimont would like to respond. Thanks. This is Jeremy. Uh, I'm I'm more of a historian. The paranormal research has been sort of a, a side thing for me. But, you know, I've had some personal experiences, but... Uh, like kind of along the lines of what was just described, a lot of my favorite things I've encountered over the years are stories that have been told to me by, in some cases, former lighthouse keepers, and I usually don't seek them out. You know, like just a, an example, a few years ago I was talking on the phone with a former lighthouse keeper in Newfoundland, Canada, and uh, he said, uh, do you want to hear about the ghost ship? <laughs> and I said, sure. And he said one night, uh, he was at this isolated lighthouse in Newfoundland, and his wife was deathly ill. She was in bed, and he was checking on her. Occasionally, she was very, very sick. And about 2 a.m., he checked on his wife on the second floor of the keeper's house next to the lighthouse. And while he was up on the second floor, he looked out the window and he saw what he said was a very brightly lit up ship approaching the rocks as if it was about to go up on the rocks. And he said that was 
extremely strange. It looked just like the ferry that went by there normally during the day. And <laughs> cue the Twilight Zone music. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, he ran downstairs thinking that a ship was about to go on the rocks. And when he got downstairs and there was no ship there. And he, he insisted, he felt like I wasn't going to believe him, so he insisted that he saw it. He knew what he saw. Another time, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a lighthouse keeper who had been at several places in Maine. He, uh, towards the end of the conversation, he said, you know, some of the keepers said these lighthouses are haunted. He laughed. He thought it was, I, I thought he was saying it was a joke. But he said, you know, one time I was, he was at this very isolated lighthouse in northern Maine, and he was the only one there. He was outside late at night. He looked over at the lighthouse, and he saw a woman sitting on the railing at the top of the tower. It has, uh, you know, they call it the gallery, the deck around the top of the lighthouse. And he saw a woman sitting there, which is a, not someplace a person would normally sit. And also there was no woman on the island, as far as he knew. And he started to approach, and she wasn't there anymore. But he, again, he knew what he saw. So I just love it when people volunteer those stories. That's like uh, finding treasure to me. Very good. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to our next question from a listener who is not with us. All right, so Connie from Cambridge, England. What does your panel think about Ouija boards? Um, and I'll, I'll comment on that. This is Shane. Um, I've talked about this extensively on this show many times, so I'm not going to go too in-depth. But um, the Ouija board is not this magical, you know, mysterious thing. It's, it's nothing but compressed, you know, cardboard or... or or paper. Um, it's what the what the Ouija board has, the effect it has on us, and because um, it basically it focuses our attention on the possibility of an interaction. When we open up for an interaction, the, uh, what comes through is usually a parasite and says, "Okay, you want to pay play, pay attention to me." And the people that usually um, you know get, have the most success with these Ouija boards are people that are in a vulnerable state. So people that go to use the Ouija board often want to talk to a loved one that had passed away, and they, you know they want to communicate. And what comes through is is never um, who you think it is. It's it's a parasite acting like that person until it's got his claws dug into you, and and, and it's ruining your life. I mean, um, but it's it's absolutely a tool just to get your your emotional state and your attention um, in the right place. Um, and that's why it works, and, and you can do this, you know, other ways too. But um, I'm sure other people have a comment on this. Yeah, so I'll pass the mic to Valerie Lafazo. Thank you. This is Valerie. Um, you know, I definitely agree with everything Shane said. You know, whenever you're reaching out to spirits, you have to be careful. Um, however, I know personally, I used a Ouija board all the time when I was a teenager, and I never had, you know, bad experiences with it. Was I fortunate? Probably. Um, I've heard other people talk about playing with it. You know, I think when I was a teenager in the early 90s, you know, it was coming back in as a fad to to play with Ouija boards. Um, But, you know, pretty much like what Shane said, it's it's a communication tool and you have to be careful. You 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 know, it's like getting on the phone and just dialing a random number and hoping you get somebody friendly. <laughs> you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, what you're going to get on the other end is something that is going to be nice, that is going to tell you who your next boyfriend is going to be or if you're going to pass that test on Monday. <laughs> you know, it's it's always something that you need to do with caution. When you're dealing with something you cannot see or hear, <laughs> you know, the, these are these are risky situations and we always need to be careful. Uh, thank you, Valerie. Uh, I, I just will comment briefly on that. Uh, the last time I used a Ouija board was in sixth grade. 
Uh, I'm not going to tell you when that was, but uh, Brontosaurus was grazing in the swamp. Uh, my friend had received one for his birthday, and we were just playing with it. And, and finally we asked when we would die. And it said that he would die in 1986, and he did. He died in a diving accident in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. Uh, but I guess it's not perfect because it said I was going to die last year, and I'm, I think I'm still here. So, But again, I think it's a sledgehammer technique, and I think Valerie's right. You just don't know what you're going to get. You can stand in the highway. Maybe you'll get hit. Maybe you won't. But who's dumb enough to take the chance? So I just think it's a very bad thing to be doing. Now, uh, Andy Kitt from KRI has a, uh, a book comment on that. Yeah, I'm, essentially it's a ditto of the rest of the comments. Uh, yes, there are a lot of people who have had successful or claimed successful encounters, but it's more than just calling somebody. Uh, it's like blindfolding yourself and standing in the middle of Times Square and yelling out, who wants to talk to me? The normal people are the ones who are going to avoid you because they're going to think you're nuts. It's the not normal people and the people you don't want to deal with that are most likely to approach you. Well, there you have it. Uh, Shane, I guess we have another. Do we have any any further audience questions at this point? Just step right up to the mic. Otherwise, we'll go on to our next uh, remote listener. All right. So, Martin from New York City, Paul and Ben. I have a love hate relationship with your show. Lots of what you say keeps me awake at night, but I can't stop listening. One thing that bothers me is your contention that we probably will not be able to believe UFO disclosure if it comes from the government. Do your guests agree with that? Okay, good question. Yeah, we, we uh, just, just the background of that is that, uh, you know, people's faith in the government is touching, but I mean, whether they're going to be telling you the truth about anything, especially disclosure, which is uh, revealing what they know about UFOs, if anything, uh, really just uh, makes me wonder if people are just being too credible. Anyone else have a uh, point on that? Okay, we have uh, Chuck Credo wants to respond. I think I can touch on that a little bit. Um, so yesterday I gave. Um, I gave a lecture a little bit about the social conditioning of our country. And one of the big uh, points that I try to make in that is we had a very serious four-day, two-weekend um, mass sighting in Washington, D.C. in 1952. A lot of people don't realize that it spanned two weekends. And this was so large, it led to uh, the largest press conference in the U.S. since the end of World War II. Yet, it is not a part of history books. It's not something that everybody talks about. What this did was this alarmed not only the public but our government to such a degree that the then CIA called together a meeting of the minds. And it, within that, they had something called the Robertson Panel, which was basically a pre-meeting in which behind closed doors they made a number of decisions. And then afterwards, they invited a few people, one notably everybody in this room probably knows, his name was Walt Disney, to attend, as well as J. Allen Hynek, who was the head of Project Blue Book, who investigated UFOs for many years. And what the government came out with is, we need to start, and this is actually in the FOIA documents, anybody can read it and get a hold of the paperwork, we need to start a disinformation campaign on the U.S. public. And the reason they cited for this wasn't because UFOs were necessarily real. It was actually because they believed that tying up the phone lines due to UFO reports would uh, be a disadvantage that the Soviets could use in the Cold War against us. So regardless of the rationale as to why it was happening, we know that our own government was not being honest with us. In fact, we know that they were using submissive tactics to infiltrate then-California UFO clubs. And they were actually putting in people 
people. This was actually in the documents as to how they were going to go out doing that. So when you start as early as the 50s and you see media changing the belief system and how we talk about UFOs to the point that people mock it now, uh, and I like to go back to something somebody said in a meetup group that we had one time, we don't need the government to tell us we're crazy. We now police each other and make each other feel that way. And that's a very true statement in many ways. We have been so socially conditioned... uh, there's something wrong with you for being interested in this and I think that's partly what we're trying to do is we're trying to change that Um, so hopefully that kind of addressed some of that we're not going to get it from the government is the point I think social change has to come within the people Uh, you look at any huge social movement from what Gandhi did in India it came from the people the people have the strength and I think we need to start not diminishing people's stories whether they be about Bigfoot whether they be about UFOs or ghosts but we need to start listening and respecting people's stories so my answer is let's not look for the government let's look from within ourselves okay thank you Chuck uh, Mike Stevens from Seacoast Saucers has a response um, yeah I'm going to echo Chuck here a little bit because he beat me to the punch but I, people always say government disclosure and I think we need to s- separate this a little bit everybody wants disclosure If you think the government's lying to you, you think they've been lying to you, why are you suddenly going to believe them when they're saying what you want to hear? It doesn't make any sense to me. If you don't trust them, you shouldn't trust them, even if they're saying what you want to. We do need disclosure, but it's not going to come from a government body, an overruling agency. It's going to come from within, from the people who have experienced and seen it and know it's true. Okay, very good. Uh, Lynn Nickerson has a response. Yes, um, I think there is overwhelming evidence that there are other creatures, entities, people visiting us um, over millennia. Um, I think we all have to recognize what's happening, um, admit to it, talk to other people about it. I think if the government does want to be forthcoming, we're not going to get all of the information. It'll only be, I mean, this is a multi-layered situation, and we will probably only get one little onion skin layer. So I I think that I agree with my other panelists here that we really have to be um, uh, our our own, well, gatekeepers and do the research ourselves and listen to what other people have to say. Okay, thank you, Lyndon. Just just briefly from my own point of view, I think there are things that should be kept secret. I agree with Stanton Friedman. Uh, there are things that um, may be so horrible in what's behind this that people really shouldn't know. Uh, people may be unhappy, but they can be perfectly comfortable in their lives. And uh, I think there's a lot more to this than you suggest, and our narrow paradigm might make it very difficult to deal with. And uh, we, we go round and round with some of the disclosure people on this show about this. And they say, well, I want to know, I don't care how bad it is. So, well, don't be, you know, be careful what you wish for. So, anyway, uh, so Shane, uh, if we have no questions from the audience, let's continue with our next one. All right, so Megan from Port Broughton, Australia. Is that, did I say that right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, do any of your panel know what the statistics are on how many people have been abducted by aliens? And why are some people abducted and others just have some close encounters for messages and communications? Do and <clears throat> excuse me. Do and of do any of you believe in alien-human hybrids, and are they among us? What about reptilians? Those dang reptilians again. Anyone have a response to that question? Okay. Mike? Okay. Mike Stevens from Seacoast Saucers. Um, 
There are quite a few questions within that question, so I'll try to address one and pass it on to somebody else. Um, the numbers, you know, you want to know how many people are being abducted. This is a question we hear a lot, and we can only give you the numbers of what's been reported. There's a huge discrepancy of how big this phenomenon actually is compared to what's reported. Um, if one out of ten say, yes, they've seen something in the sky, you can um, imagine that that number is much higher. Um, the social stigma that we work with, you know, to try to reverse has really put a grip on people where they will not say it, even in a room where everybody has come out. out and said, yeah, I've seen something, people still not come forward. So trying to put an actual real number excuse me, number on the data is nearly impossible. All right, thank you, Mike. Uh, we're burning up this hour pretty quickly. We're almost to the end. I want to give anyone on the panel a chance to uh, make any final comments or statements. And we got four minutes. So very, very quickly, anybody? Okay, well, in that case, why don't we go very quickly around and tell us your name again and your website or something really brief. <laughs> Jeremy Dontremont. <laughs> Jeremy Dontremont. Uh, my website is newenglandlighthouses.net. There's a ghost story mixed in the here and there, but it's mostly lighthouse history. Uh, Mike Stevens, and you can find our website at www.seacoastsaucers.com. Uh, Lynn Nickerson, Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience. We do have a radio show on Saturday nights, 9 to 10, on WSCA 106.1 FM in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yeah, Willie Hassel, the uh, the other half of Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience. And the website for that is spiritradiotheparanormalexperience.org. And we can also be find, found at spiritchasersparanormal.com. Hi, Andy Kidd of KRI again. Uh, the KRI calendar is probably the best thing. Uh, that's accessible through meetup.com backslash the center NH. Hello, this is Chuck Credo again with Seacoast Saucers. Uh, you can learn more about Seacoast Saucers and all the work we're doing uh, around the Stratum, New Hampshire area in New England at www.seacoastsaucers.com. And I'm also the um, I am also the mind behind the Galileo interviews, which you can find out more about. These are real people having experiences that defy all of what we consider reality, dimensions, and time. And you can find more about that the Galileo interviews on Facebook. Valerie LaFasso, and along with the Seacoast Saucers websites that have already been given out, um, my books, the Tangled Web of Friends series, can be found on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. This is Alexander Petikov again. You can find all my stuff at PetikovMedia.com. That's P-E-T-A-K-O-V Media.com. There's links to all my social media on there, so just go on there for everything. Okay, very good. I want to thank our panelists. Uh, wonderful, wonderful talk. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, we forgot Ronnie. Sorry about that, Ronnie. I'm going to pass the mic down to Ronnie here. And, uh hey, uh, Ronnie LeBlanc, author of Monsterland Encounters with UFOs, Bigfoot, and Orange Orbs. Uh, RonnieLeBlanc.com, and you can find the book on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Okay, very good.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.